When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the I'm Alive and Looking East episode of After the Deluge. After a few pretty wild weeks spent navigating the 80s, we have finally made it to the 90s, and that's very exciting to me because we're going to start today with I'm Alive. I'll jump in midway through the episode to talk about Looking East as well. I'm Alive came out in October of 1993 and is Jackson Brown's 10th full-length album. After wading into the social and political issues of the 1980s, it marked his return to a more personal approach to songwriting. So, I'm pretty sure I've said this a couple times on the podcast, but this is actually the first Jackson Brown album I really ever heard. I was a 10-year-old in 1993, and I could vividly remember the plastic jewel case of I'm Alive, like, sitting on a vertical rack of CDs that my parents kept next to their oversized stereo with, like, fake wood grain along it. This album played a ton in my house as a child, and I know every single song pretty much by memory, and this album is basically the reason I ultimately sought out Jackson Brown as I grew into adulthood myself and fell in love with the rest of his music. It's kind of cool to jam through this podcast series and like talk to someone like Holly Gleason, who's talking about hearing Running on Empty for the first time and that being her introduction or Pat Francis, and he's talking about hearing Holdout organically for the first time, or talking to my dad, and he's hearing The Pretender on the radio for the first time. Um, I was only 10 years old when I was hearing this, but we've now caught up and reached the part where I'm hearing an album for the first time when it came out. And so now here is the 1993 Rolling Stone review by Kara Manning. In the early 70s, there was no need to distinguish the Cowboys from the Rockers, primarily because the Cowboys were the Rockers. Long-haired desert poets with guitars and a moody, self-focused bent to their lyrics. In those days, artists like Jackson Brown and the Eagles redefined American rock. On later albums, such as Late for the Sky, The Pretender, and Running on Empty, Brown became the heartbreak kid, a misunderstood male looking for a heroic love. More recently, he's focused on his discontent on social wrongs, on lives in the balance, and world in motion, pushing romance aside. I don't know about you if you're a person who's listened to all the previous episodes of this podcast, but that like summary almost feels like whiplash in the way that this podcast feels that way, right? We're like zipping through decades of music and he goes to all these places and I've just really come to appreciate how cool that is and I hope you have too. On I'm Alive, songs like I'll Do Anything, Too Many Angels, and Take This Rain vividly recall his early work. Sky Blue and Black, Shining with Brown's Gentle Piano and Stream of Consciousness Regret, is one of his loveliest, saddest songs. And yet there is something relentless about Brown's pretty misery. The album evokes the same near-suicidal dread that made The Pretender so wonderful and so exhausting. And that is the end of the review. I'll add there that it got three and a half out of five stars. And before I introduce our guest in just a second... I want to say I made this podcast because I love Jackson Brown's music and I wanted to see if I could do it well, and I've really enjoyed the process. I've had no plans to sell ads or solicit subscriptions or anything like that, but I am interested in doing more of this kind of stuff. Um, I've been booking, interviewing, recording, editing, publishing, promoting these all entirely on my own, and I somehow didn't really bargain for how laborious that would be. But if you work in this world or if you know anything about doing this kind of thing, I would love to talk about it. So my email is justincox22 at gmail.com. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. I'll add that I've been pretty blown away by the response to this. It's really validated the idea that I had in the first place and the decision to like just sort of jump into it when we initiated this quarantine. Uh, I plan to take a short breather after it's over in a couple of weeks, but I'm pretty sure I'll start thinking about what to do next sometime after that. 
which brings us to our guest, who is David Wilde. David was a writer and editor for Rolling Stone, who made the move from New York to the West Coast in the early 90s, pretty much right around the time that these albums came out. Early in this conversation, you're going to hear David talk about someone named Jan Winner, who many of you may know, but if you don't, Jan Winner was the founder and editor of Rolling Stone, sort of a legendary figure, and that context is, I think, helpful. In addition to his work with Rolling Stone, David has written several books, and he's worked extensively in TV, including writing and producing for the Grammys since 2001. Not only will you hear him do some pretty heavy name-dropping, you'll also hear him crack some jokes about the fact that he does that name-dropping. That's sort of a David Wilde thing. And not only am I very happy to have him on this podcast to drop those names, but it was just cool to learn that like during this quarantine, he was out taking hikes around the hills of Los Angeles and listening to this podcast about Jackson Brown. So really glad we had a chance to talk, and I hope you enjoy it too. I'll see you in a little bit to talk about Looking East. David, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast first, and now I get to uh, uh, try to tear it down. <laughs> I appreciate that, and let's see. Let's let's see what you got. All right. Um, what was so? I'm alive comes out in the early '90s. How did you come to that album? I had moved to LA for Rolling Stone to be the West Coast bureau chief in '91, and uh, one of my I think Jan Wenner may have made a list for me of like the uh, 50 people I needed to have lunch with. And I think he actually said, and they have to pay for that lunch. So I, uh, I was in the position of like literally going, like asking David Geffen, uh, I think Jackson Brown and like every big West coast uh, uh, powerhouse, uh, at least in Jan's point of view. And I literally would invite them to lunch to get to know them if I didn't know them and then wait for them to pick up a check. What a deal. That's great. Not bad. Where'd you move to California from? Uh, I was uh, from New York. I'm an East Coast kid, went to college in Cornell and Ithaca, uh, went back to New York after that, fell into magazines and uh, was sort of the music editor of Rolling Stone, uh, right? I got got very lucky early on. It's all been right downhill. But uh, then I, uh, uh, I moved out here, Jan basically sent me out to run the West Coast Bureau uh, in 91. And then uh, my memory is that it might have been sometime 93, I went into the studio, I believe, to write uh, a sort of interview news piece about Jackson. And I saw online the headline of it, uh, but I, for some reason I can't get it online. I do remember being in a studio, like talking to him for the first time, and uh, my memory is thinking, where is the portrait of him hanging where he's aging? Because in uh, 1993, he was still this like, uh, you know, this like rock and roll beauty. Uh, and even as a, uh, a straight rock critic, he sort, I sort of was taken aback, but that he still had that. He had unbelievable sort of presence. And in fact, when you look at that album cover for I'm Alive, it's like it's like he's coming out of water like. I can't tell if it's supposed to be the creature of the Black Lagoon or, uh, or was it, <laughs> G- is it Jesus who was walking on water but then decided to take a dip. I have no problem with this crooked world. Waiting for you. I play the cards I drew. Waiting for you. No problem with the changes life has hurled. My problem is you. Waiting for you. One of the things about Jackson that makes him a compelling and enduring mystery to me is that he is like, uh, of our great singer songwriters, uh, there are ones that have become sex symbols almost in spite of themselves. It's like if, if he hadn't been one of the greatest singer songwriters of all time, he could have had a, a great modeling career. So, uh, <laughs> and you know, and uh, it's something that I, I, I don't know why I'm so fascinated with that. I think because I don't look like Jackson Brown, uh, I think because I struggled to look like more like Warren Zevon. The last time I saw him was uh, I was uh, the country star Brad Paisley. At the last minute, his wife couldn't go to Joe Walsh's birthday party. It was like this star-studded private surprise event 
party. And uh, Brad brought me as his date because he knew that Joe liked me, even though I wasn't famous enough to probably be in the first invite list. But I ended up sitting at a table with, it was Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Jackson Brown, and his female companion. And I was, and Brad Paisley and I, and I was- you, you Real quick, you basically just listed like the three first famous people to get coronavirus. <laughs> well- uh, I think I, I, I do aim to be timely and topical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so keep going. Though. Uh, yeah. What's weird is that my name dropping is very tied to uh, even even pandemics. Nice. Well, so you were talking about the cover to I'm Alive and something is weird. Like my story with I'm Alive, I'm, I'm 36 years old. And so I was like a kid, but old enough to be like retaining the music I was hearing in my house by that point. And I know... I know I was here. I was. I heard I'm Alive and then Looking East, which we're going to talk about a little later often. And I saw the CDs sitting on the CD player and stuff. And I, I recognize those songs from my childhood. You kind of talk about his looks and yeah, there's some, there's like something magnetic about that I'm Alive cover. But then the Looking East cover is also a silhouette of his head. And then also his first album is a silhouette of, of his head, like the super iconic Saturate Before Using um, cover. And like, I've never asked about this or even investigated it, but these albums are kind of like a turn away from the like very, very like deliberate political topical albums he just made back toward this kind of like writing about matters of the heart. And I, I wonder if there's like some reference there to that. Like they feel like they're of a piece or something. I hear your heart beating everywhere. When we're Yeah, I think this is a fascinating moment in his career. And uh, I was old enough and being a journalist at the time where this was sort of, it did have this sense of not that he'd been gone anywhere particularly, but it was a comeback moment. It was a rediscovery moment. It also, if you have to remember, there's two things uh, that as a, let me, as your older rock critic brother, tell you a couple things. One, it was the era of like Bill Clinton is now president. And it was sort of like Bill Clinton, I think, is like a year older or two than Jackson Brown. And like instead of railing against the Bush administration, and this would be the first Bush administration there, you know, there's now like a rock and roll uh, uh, guy who who probably loved Jackson Brown and probably had made out to the Pretender album uh, with at least hundreds of girls uh, <laughs> in the in the Oval Office. And there's also grunge had happened, you know, uh, and there's sort of like uh, all these, a generation of sort of rock star were trying to sort of answer that question of who am I in this era? How am I relevant? And I think the previous decade was a fascinating one because like all the cool guys of the 70s uh, and cool women of the 70s ran into a truck called the 80s and the, you know, for Jackson, I think it was particularly dramatic because, A, you know, he went political in sort of, you know, uh, uh, like going off trying to fight the good fight as he saw it and as I see it, you know. Uh, but I think uh, this album is sort of a correction of trying to, you know, it's, it's a danger for any artist when you, especially an artist who is first and foremost famous for, you know, introspection uh, to become a editorial writer of, of some sort. And, uh, and then you have eighties production, which uh, undermined uh, for a lot of great artists, like a lot of people's worst music was done in the eighties. Uh, and a lot of those records are unlistenable. Even, even if they're great songs, there's records where I'll put on a, a sort of, you know, record from the mid eighties from a writer I love. And sometimes I can't feel the music anymore because there's too much fake stuff between I've, me and them. Because I grew up on a lot of music from the seventies that my family listened to, including Jackson Brown. I, in my like discovery process of digging into like, well, this is a great artist. Like let's see what they put out later. There are tons of them that made 
music that I just couldn't even comprehend in the eighties. And what's interesting is like, I found music of artists that emerged in the eighties that I, I liked, you know, but they like emerged with those tools and that skill set, And it seemed like, I, I'm not, I can't like say this across the board, but almost like you said, you, you, you do, you emerge in a time like the seventies or late sixties, and then you run up against something called the eighties and all this stuff just changes. Like, like everything we think about history, context, it all can be blown away by a great song, one great song. Uh, and when we get to I'm Alive, you know, there's a number of them that I think sort of made that moment. When I see the light upon your think about that period before this like uh you know a song like in the shape of a heart which is one of my favorite songs jackson brown ever wrote and it it, you listen to the recording and like there are times when i was like i how can i love a song this much and hate a recording this much and then you get to like the recent jackson brown where he's done these the literal stripped down you know, acoustic version of almost all his classics. And you realize that like the answer is that we, what we love about Jackson Brown is Jackson Brown. And that eighties production found a way to hide what he writes about and in how the music sounds. And in the eighties, I think that was where those records were hiding him underneath a lot of what I believe the technical term my people uses schmutz. It was just <laughs> a whole lot of sonic, schmutz and like technology and like the truth is if you think about jackson brown and why he became jackson brown it's a lot of his it the feel of him singing to you touching a piano or david lindley touching you know whatever instrument he wanted to touch that's 75 percent of the magic you're right yeah. there and i once went to see leon russell a writer who i bet jackson liked at some point and uh, this was sometime when I moved to LA in the 90s and it was him and three guys on synthesizers on stage and I was like oh boy that's not how how I want to see Leon Russell you know you know not a not a real piano in the house not a real (laughs) organ in the house well however deliberate it was I'm not sure I mean it has to be deliberate to a point he comes this just does feel like a return to what he did on those first five albums um and I think it's just a really good album. Like I, 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 it looks like it was well received too in the nineties, but I just do think I'm alive is one of my favorite albums outside of those first five. I agree. And in fact, uh, when I, I was listening to Bruce Springsteen's induction speech into the rock and roll hall of fame of Jackson, uh, last night, and he went through after talking about how jealous he was of the girls who were drawn to a Jackson Brown concert in the relative lack of uh, a female audience that he had at the time. Uh, but what he, he eventually got to the core of what's musically important. He goes, what he goes, there's all these songs that Jackson had written that I wish I had written, you know, that I'm jealous of, you know, and when he ran through a pretty short list of the songs, two of them are on this album. He mentioned I'm alive, which kicks the album off. And he mentioned sky blue and black. And that's the, what I remember in real time was putting this on. I think if I might've heard them in the studio, but when I finally listened to the recordings, you hear I'm alive. And it was like a breath of fresh air in his career because it was him artfully, poetically acknowledging a little what was going on in his life, in his career. You know, it's like, it, it was in essence him saying, I've been through some shit, but I'm I'm not it didn't kill me. It's been a long time since I watched these lights alone. I look around my life tonight and you are gone. I might have done something to keep you if I'd known how unhappy you had become. For anybody who's lived any life, you know, because Again, this is 20 years on from him being the poet laureate of Southern California rock. He was a man with, you know, 
you know, a life. And I think that was a really powerful return to form. And then Sky Blue and Black, uh, later in the record, almost, it's not the last song, but it's the sort of the last epic towards the end. Those two anchors made this like a place for him to, I think, restart his his momentum. Yeah, Sky Sky Blue and Black is just a very clear all timer. Like I don't I wasn't I don't know what was going on the radio as a kid, anything. I remember my dad loving that song. I remember me being a kid loving that song. That's it just jumps at you. It just is such an affecting song. Yeah, and you know, it, again, this record it wasn't like, you know, all the records, you know, it's not like his audience had disappeared and it's not like this was the biggest record of all time, but for an artist like Jackson Brown uh, in 1993 to be on the radio, to get good press after getting some not so good press. Uh, it was a reminder of why we fell in love with the guy, you know, two decades earlier. I think I think something, even if you strip away the, the um, political nature of some of the records that preceded it, which I, I admire an artist who talks about that stuff and isn't afraid to go there. But I also obsess over sort of artfully written words that don't come out and tell you exactly what they're saying, but they allude to things. And that's like Jackson Brown's a master at that. And like you describe on I'm Alive, which is the title of the album and sort of sets the tone for what follows. You're you're getting that again. You know, you're getting to interpret. You're not getting to just listen and be told, basically. No. And I think what's funny, he has the skill and the heart of a poet but he was living you know the 80s were the least elegant time in history sonically in you know politically it was just and and you know i it was not a easy time to be a poet bob dylan had that where he had like 10 tough years and then there's a moment to where both the times are right and the artist is in the right moment to restate their purpose or reassess why they're here. And literally I'm alive is, you know, you know, uh, the word existential is used too much to describe too many things, but that's, that's like an existential anthem. It is literally like, uh, it's, it's, it's very personal. And I think it's alluding to some very personal stuff he'd been through, but it, it could not be more relatable because, you know, if you're dead, you're not hearing the song. So if you're alive, it's it was sort of a celebration of language, uh, music, and just the creative process for him. Yeah, I think it was sort of a reintroduction uh, of what made him great. And then, yeah, I, I agree that Sky Blue and Black is an all-time classic. And not just because it was on an episode of Friends. Even more than that, because it's a great piece of art you've written about friends. Like you, you might be able to answer this. Like, I don't know how much anticipation or how much of like how sure people were that the show was going to be a hit, because I know that for every pilot that get for every pilot that gets made a hundred shows, pilots fail. Right. And so they make the pilot episode of friends sky blue and black is not only on it, but is on it in like a key big moment of it. And then friends, blows up friends is one of the biggest shows on tv in the 90s and then now it's on netflix and all that and so any person who's revisiting friends is starting with episode one of it and they're all hearing sky blue and black every time you start that thing on demand it's just a cool bit of trivia it makes me happy that people are getting that song fed to them in that way because they might not otherwise find it and i just think it's cool in the calling out to one another and the lovers up and down the strand in the sound of the waves and the cries of the seagulls circling the sand And the fragments of the songs carried down the wind from some radio And the murmuring of the city in the distance, ominous and low You know, between uh, Marta Kaufman and her then-husband who helped with the theme and Kevin Bright who was a big music fan, I bet you one of them just said like, I want Jackson Brown on my uh, on my pilot. Like you said, Sky Blue and Black, like All Good Things is a ending song. I mean, it's kind of funny. All Good Things got to come to an end. And on his first album, he's got this 
the final track of it is my opening farewell. It just feels like a punctuation mark on it. But for all intents and purposes, sky blue and black feels like you're the last chapter. Whereas the next thing's like an epilogue or something. But the, what's cool about this album is like you said, I'm alive is like this contemplative existential thing, but then you get like my problem is you and everywhere I go. And these songs are, while it's also like confronting personal things, a lot of it feels pretty light, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like really dragging you down into some mud. It It's very, it's very just listenable on your like Saturday or something too. You know, he manages that. Oh no. Yeah. It has a sort of like, to be fair, this is sort of him entering his uh, grown up NPR stage of his career. Uh, you know, where, and I think where his audience is now, like he's taking his sort of, I don't know that he's appealing to the kids so much as he's sort of taking his uh, increasingly adult audience with him. So there's like, yeah, there's both a seriousness and like sky blue and black, that says it right there a little bit. If you ever need holding, call my name and I'll be there. If you ever need holding, I know that I'll see you through. You're the color of the sky. There's darkness on the edge of the town he's uh, he's living in, but there's also a lightness of touch. I think Sky Blue and Black is where he sort of reminds us, oh yeah, I can write an epic. I will write you a six minute and six second song that will, you'll, you'll not have trouble paying attention to the whole thing. And it's sort of like a guy who has sort of struggled a little bit to define himself for the previous like decade is sort of like saying, I don't have to redefine myself. I just have to be the best Jackson Brown I can be. Yeah. This record, there's not anything that I think the, the highs are extremely high and nothing takes you out of it. I, I can remember on previous records, songs that just threw me, even that's not necessarily ones I didn't like, but on this record, I like everything. And then there's the tracks I just love, you know? And yeah. one interesting thing is like, if you look at the credits and I, if I ever could find my old article, I'd, Maybe I knew this, but, you know, Don was produced two tracks and then Jackson and Scott Thurston, who I got to know around this time because he joined the Heartbreakers, you know, and I actually I work with Don was in my, you know, current world because he's a musical director for some TV shows. And that's mainly what I do is write and produce on TV shows, a lot of them to do with music. But my guess is that did he? I think he must have started with Don was and then sort of taken it back to his little Groove Masters universe. Two have betrayed love and two have been true and together we went crashing through Every bond and vow and faith we knew me and the fool I've been and the two of you So you worked on um, Going Home, Jackson Brown documentary that came out between I'm Alive and Looking East. And Scott Thurston on that thing is you can't you can't not look at him like he's clearly brilliant. And and like in parts where he's harmonizing and playing keyboards and parts where he's in the back playing the like little acoustic guitar line on on uh, Sky Blue and Black. And then you look him up and see that he was in the Heartbreakers and Iggy and the Stooges. It's like. A crazy career. Yeah, what's what's fascinating is um, I happened by coincidence. I moved here in '91 for the magazine. Uh, that I was sort of adopted by the Heartbreakers. Like Jackson, I have this, you know, intermittent running into him, and you know, I'll tell you about the going home thing. But like Scott Thurston was in the Heartbreakers at a time when I was around the Heartbreakers all the time. When Howie Epstein, who was you know in the group, was my groomsman at my wedding. Uh, around this time yeah but Scott Thurston had a an amazing way to sort of like he was a very sort of interesting guy who knew how to sort of stay in the background and just make everything sound better and you know his like how many the guy you know was in the Stooges in a later version you know he's 
a sort of a, the utility player who everyone loves in the Heartbreakers. And with Jackson, he plays this huge role that you'd have to be a guy who reads album credits to even notice. Totally. All right. Well, let's. Here's here's how we'll make our segue over to going home because I want to talk to you about it because that documentary I saw it probably like 10 12 maybe more than that years ago I'm not sure but I I rewatched it for the first time in at least a decade um over this past week and realized like there are scenes in it that I can almost like s- recite the words like I it made me realize that when I watched that thing back in the day like my family had it I watched it a lot I must have watched it a lot and um, it's one of the, I'm really excited to talk to you about being a part of that. And sure enough, I watch it and I get, to, I, I had already had you booked for this, but I get to see like at the very end, like the list of interviewers, Cameron Crowe and you and a few others. And what a cool deal. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate any cool by association with Jackson Brown. I, the truth is uh, I interviewed him once. Uh, I think he liked the piece at, I, 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 uh, I will assume so, because one day I'm at Rolling Stone. Uh, it's like six six in the evening, and I get a call from Jackson. And again, this is we haven't probably spoken. I don't think since uh, uh, I had interviewed him. And he goes, uh, uh, "David, um, I'm doing this uh, show, this sort of documentary thing, and I really would love you to help help me." And I was like, "Well, I'd, I'd love to." He goes, "I need a few days of you uh, to." come around with me. And I was like, well, I have to call Jan Wenner and uh, get permission. So can you give me till uh, I'll call him tomorrow in the morning and then I'll get back to you. And uh, he said, I kind of need you to be with me at like 6am tomorrow. And, (laughs) uh, and I'm like, well, uh," and again, listen, I I was excited by the idea, but I just, you know, at this point at Rolling Stone, I, I was expected in the office. So I said, well, Jackson, I'm embarrassed to say I don't have Jan's home number. So uh, he goes, I'll call. And he called and called me back in five minutes. And he goes, you're mine. And that was how I ended up uh, spending, like, I think it was like 48 hours driving around Southern California with him and just popping into, like, I remember it was a studio in the, in the, Valley to talk to Crosby uh, and Nash somewhere else to talk to Bonnie Raitt. Maybe it was Henley. I also spoke to, we went to somewhere down, uh, you know, down the past the South Bay to talk to a guy with whom he did all sorts of political benefits. And I was just with no advance notice having these conversations about him. And he was like, he'd walk out, you know, and, and, uh, or be way back in the room. So it wouldn't be uncomfortable for anybody. Uh, and I spent like this fantastic, uh, 48 hours with him as we go from one spot to another, he would just talk about why he wanted them in the, in the show. And what's interesting is like, I'm so interested in how much you love that show because I love it, but it seemed to me like there's something about Jackson's career that is under reported is that like almost everybody else in Southern California rock history signed on the biggest manager, like almost everyone had an Irving Azoff or, you know, another powerhouse manager, everyone else sort of did things and were protected. And Jackson seemed to always do things in a much more, like, I think he is at heart a real sort of like, indie artist (laughs) like he his manager you know was a guy named buddha i think maybe still is you know who and i don't think i saw him during any of that shooting uh i don't think i saw the director (laughs) of that project if you look at it it's a kind of interesting mix of old and new and doc and performance and it's it's sort of all over the place but wonderful and i think jackson treated it like you know, a piece of music. He just put together elements and little rhythmic things and it has its own odd energy. I I agree. It's got this, uh, it's got the like kind of thread that binds it is that live show and the the set of songs that they pick to play from it are beautiful in that some are, are, he's playing some of the older songs and some are right from I'm Alive. Those are 
pretty new songs that he they were probably playing on on the tour for that album and everything. And then, like you said, it kind of goes all over the place, but there's so many authentic moments in it. Like there's a moment where he's down in like the little storage area looking through like boxes and everything. And then he's playing the playing on a piano and showing you how he wrote Dr. My Eyes. Then you're on a bus and he's playing this version of Too Many Angels that's not or it's not a bus, like a van, like in out by the beach. And his, I think his kid is there next to him. And he's playing Too Many Angels, but it's not written yet. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm just working on this song. There's an angel on a river hanging from the armoire door. There's a cupid with his feet crossed on the birdcage by the door. There's a baby angel drummer, his eyes are open wide. And two more tiny cherubs on the mantel side by side. It jumps to all these different places, and, and I, there's a you could call that all over the place, but the places it goes feel so they are they feel so natural and not contrived that you're getting these glimpses into something very cool and real. It's kind of like why, for so many people, is uh, Running on Empty their favorite album by him because it's because. As with with a talent as perfect as his, with a guy who looks as perfect and sounds as perfect and plays as perfect, it's like the more ragged is more right. And like you know, the rough edges on uh, running on empty are the reason, in a way, it's my favorite version of Jackson Brown. And in in that same way, I think that's why you respond to that documentary because it's like there's something, you know real about it because it is not it's not polished it's and in fact it's a weird deal and i uh, because i was involved really for those just a couple days and then was invited to a screening party i don't remember exactly the truth but i the going home was a it maybe even was like a series of disney channel or some version of a disney channel it was like quite an ambitious and arty project to show at that sort of like cable moment. I remember seeing that on like the DVD case or something, but yeah, it's, it's cool. And, and like part of what you describe where if it can feel like it bounces is that like his career bounces around and, and it, there's a period in the middle there where it feels so eighties and different. And then you're kind of into the nineties and you just get to kind of walk that path and it's fun. Well, that's well. That sort of leads me into like looking east. All right, I'm gonna cut off David for just a second. We're all gonna jump ahead together to 1998, which is Looking East. Uh, the Rolling Stone review for Looking East was written by Elisa Gardner. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. With the death knell tolling for classic rock, some of our most beloved dinosaurs may begin resorting to desperate and potentially embarrassing measures to seem hip. But not Jackson Brown, bless his heart. He even looks the same as he did 20 years ago. Same modified page boy hairdo, same soulful puppy dog eyes that drive a certain type of girl crazy. And on his new album, Looking East, Brown delivers earnest, graceful roots pop that's in keeping with the direction his music has been going since the 70s. That's not to say Brown has blazed a narrow trail. He's shown himself to be equally adept at driving rockers and tender folky ballads, and has tackled both confessional writing and social commentary. On his last LP, 1993's I'm Alive, Brown looked predominantly inward. On Looking East, he shifts the focus back a bit to some of the troubles surrounding him. But however bummed out he gets, the music much of which Brown wrote in collaboration with the members of his band, is warm and buoyant, and the arrangements are full of space and light. The lyrics offer hope, too. And now, back to David. Standing in the ocean with sunburns low in the wind Like a fire in the cavernous darkness at the heart of the beast With my beliefs and possessions like what's funny is that 
I, until your podcast has made me go back and listen to a couple of the albums, which I'm such an album guy, but even I, especially, you know, since this podcast and this conversation is happening, you know, it happened, it's all sort of been during this sort of lockdown period. It's like getting your attention to focus on a whole album can sometimes be a, a welcome relief from thinking about other things or watching other things on the news that I'm very much with you on that. Yes. So what's interesting about, I, I thought I didn't necessarily like looking East and I have issues with it, but when I hear, when I put it on again, I listen. you know, it starts with looking East, which is a better song than I remember. And then the barricades of heaven is maybe in my top, you know, it, it's in my top 10 for sure of all time songs by him. It's an amazing, amazing song. If you were going to make the Jackson Brown film or stage musical, it's like a key song because it's like his youth, his his story. It's like it's so poetically, powerfully stated and like the, the just the title, the barricades of heaven. It's like it's 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 brilliant. I just think it's brilliant. Running down around the towns along the shore. I was sixteen and on my own. No, I couldn't tell you what the hell those breaks were for. I was just trying to hear my song. The song Looking East to kick it off with that is like it doesn't it doesn't feel like he's like diving hard into like some something super explicitly social or political it still sounds personal but it's still like the imagery of his like back to the ocean and him looking east at the country you're looking you're, you're sort of assessing it but it still feels personal and so i think that there's like a cool introduction to that to this album and then you get barricades of heaven and it's really a super strong initial kind of one-two. What does he say? You better bring your own redemption when you come to the barricades of heaven where I'm from. That's like Jackson Brown can just do that to you. Gotta bring your own redemption. Yeah, and it has weird resonance for me. Uh, and again, I, I just like images you have of like his youth, which I feel like my deepest understanding of his youth is in that song. Uh, but like you always, you read about like whatever the sort of mission church-like, you know, place he lived in South, in LA, like where no one, like the, the place of like, prefab housing and mansions that are garish like you literally think of this kid i always do like this weird beautiful poet child coming up in some sort of like church in the middle like off of sunset which looking east is a great track and sounds deep and i go with it barricades of heaven is interesting because going with that second it's like the opposite of I'm Alive, where you build to Sky Blue and Black. It's like, in a certain way, I don't think I ever listened to the rest of Looking East after <laughs> Barricades of Heaven. But truthfully, like that was what was interesting is I put it on late at night when my wife was asleep. And I was like, oh, wow, there's things I do like. In the original moment, I just kept repeating Barricades of Heaven. I've, I've had albums like that where I've listened to the first couple songs and been like, all right, good to go from here. Um, I feel a little bad. I feel like I'm betraying someone when I do that, but <laughs> yes, I don't, I'm like enslaving myself by the album format because I like romanticize it, which is why I'm doing a podcast like this. But in a weird way, Jackson probably knew how special this song was and it pops up on very best ofs and all that, even though it wasn't like, I don't think it was a pop hit of any sort. Uh, but I think it, in a weird way, it throws the album out of, it's like if it's a ship, it is, there's too much weight in the front of this ship. So when I went back to it, it's like, there's things that like, I maybe might've hated at the time, but like 
I love I'm the cat now because it's like it's so slight. It's almost like uh, somebody's baby. Like when a guy who goes deep goes that shallow, it's it can be this like like an unexpected day at the beach, and it's like I love I love that song. You're thinking that you've got me trained. I'm aware of that. But when you need your outlook changed, baby, I'm the cat. Baby, I'm I'm fascinated with people who are considered sensitive singer-songwriters and have spent, like, Cat Stevens is someone who I do know quite well and did a bigger documentary with and still have stayed in touch with. And, like, I, I now cannot believe I never pitched Cat Stevens cutting I'm the Cat. Which would be, you know, and he could then do Year of the Cat by Al Stewart, and I could bring together all my sensitive singer-songwriter needs. If if there was ever a time to do it, this now this, uh, exactly all rules are off, and so a Cat Stevens album about no- covering nothing but songs about cats. <laughs> I'll I, I'll break the glass and do that any moment. So I think I said earlier, like I I I respect the fact that like there are a lot of artists who don't necessarily get into their politics and things like that. Like, I don't know if you saw this Taylor Swift documentary that Miss Americana, they spend a lot of time talking about her, like the, the pressure of talking about this stuff. And Jackson Brown always talked about it. He always was a person with his beliefs and causes and like integrity behind that in the eighties. And especially the late eighties, it becomes like very directly, like it's not like playing benefits about like, like no nukes benefits it's like this the albums are the politics and so then i'm alive we talked about how that's kind of like a a step back from that and a little bit more of like an inward look and this feels more connected to i'm alive than any of that other stuff but what i was saying about looking east feeling like it's him as a person but it's also him as a person living in the larger context of what's happening in the world and i think he kind of gets into that stuff and like information wars is a song that it kind of feels like it could be off of one of those 80s albums and, and it's possible it is not a great fit in the our larger flow but for whatever reason i find my way toward liking it you get the world every night tv show the latest spin on the shit we're in blow by blow these songs are all attributed to like almost all of them are attributed to all of the band members as writers and you could hear it in songs like that and yeah my history of with artists would suggest that what that meant was as a uh, a process point probably went into his groove master studio and said let's just jam some stuff and like and, and I'm the cat, stuff like that feels very much like that. How long did you find me? A lot of what you're saying is just making me realize that part of the mystery of the guy, who I, again, I spent two, two days and other times over the years talking to him. And I still couldn't quite get a handle on him. And then in preparation for this, I reached out to a uh, a singer-songwriter who knows him and said, just sort of asked a few questions. And uh, one thing she said was, and again, this is someone who knows him on a personal level, that because I project, we tend to project onto people and Jackson Brown looks like one thing. But what she said is he's kind of nerdy and kind of kooky, which he does not look kooky or nerdy. Uh, he looks, you know, like a like a great romantic poet, and he has been a rock star for decade after decade. What I like are the songs that give me an insight into that. This is a guy who's writing these days and sleeping with Nico at sixteen. Or, you know, you know his life. His life does not suggest nerd or kooky, but there is something other and oddball about him. Why does he? The person who maybe has one of the most important relationships artistically is with Dave Lindley, who is the definition of quirk and kook. And I think uh, there's something 
just he is odder than he looks. That beautiful face is betrayed by there's something odder about him. And I remember thinking about it, you know, I as a writer and producer on the Grammys, I remember even watching him when we when Glenn Fry passed days after that, you know, the Eagles did a tribute. And I remember the discussions and it was decided that Jackson would join them for that, you know, that they were going to do uh, take it easy. And it was interesting because like in the minds of East coast rock critics, which I once was before I moved out here. Oh, those many years ago, you know, Eagles and Jackson Brown are the same thing, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but they are not like they were all when I, I just remember being on the side of the stage watching Jackson for that and thinking like Jackson isn't blend in. He didn't quite even blend in with the Eagles. I know there there's obvious history there, but he is his own. He's his own cat. He really is. And I think like to come back to the documentary, I think because because you saying that and you talking about someone who knows him personally saying that like it honestly makes me happy. I love it. And it makes sense. And it when you watch that documentary, you kind of can see you'll kind of see him every once in a while just follow his mind down a weird little path that wouldn't be the conventional talking head thing to say, you know, it feels charmingly quirky in its way that, like you said, you have to like acclimate to it because you're expecting David Lindley to say something quirky and he delivers on that and does, but Jackson Brown has his own version of that. Look at all these kids with nothing but trouble in their eyes, trouble in their future, trouble in their lives. Some bridges are falling down. The insight I've gained from being around these artists, first as a journalist and then like on working with them, on collaborating them on shows and TV events and things like that is, listen, when you're talking singer songwriter, Bob Dylan, he's pretty good at that. And uh, he's my hero. And I named my firstborn, you know, after him. And I once had a meeting with him on a project and he was coming from an interview with Rolling Stone. (laughs) And uh, he came in to his hotel room where I was waiting and he said, uh, "Ah, David, fucking interviews. People still asking me why I went electric. How interesting. And I remember (laughs) going like, oh, my God, my whole career as a journalist, I have been underestimating how much I'm annoying them with the projections of what from that rock critic head, what we, or even from that fan perspective, what you're, what you're pushing on them. And I think like I have asked Jackson, Cat Stevens and James Taylor, some variety of like, you're known as a sensitive singer songwriter. How sensitive are you? (laughs) And it it has baffled. It has annoyed and baffled all of them to varying degrees. Uh, They don't want to hear about that stuff because they want to be who they are and who they are is much better than any, you know, descriptor. Yeah. I saw, it's funny. You mentioned the Bob Dylan thing. Like I hadn't, I somehow didn't watch the like Martin Scorsese, Bob Dylan documentary, like for, for until about a year ago. And there were some moments I remember filming my TV as I watched them, like pausing, rewinding and filming it of him, like just absolutely like, turning the mirror back on the reporters like what are you asking me i think there's one reporter asking him to put the end of his glasses in his mouth and he's just like what are you what are you guys doing like and questions along the lines of yeah like they're still asking me when i go why i went electric like his mind has no like comprehension of like why like why well and i think you know i i think also van morrison who's another great artist who i love who i and one of the most difficult interviews I've ever had, maybe the most difficult interview I ever had in my life. But I remember at some point when I was asking him something about his craft and I thought I am, it's, this is like, I am asking a lion what makes a lion so majestic. It's like, you don't ask the lion, you appreciate the lion. And that's one of the things is like someone like Jackson Brown, it's like projecting onto him, putting all this weight on these artists that want to be free, that like the real Jackson Brown is the guy in barricades of heaven. I think he seems happier and lighter. I think the truth is artists like Jackson Brown do better when they're 
can free themselves of the projections we put on them. And that's what I think Jackson had to sort of like find his way back to what he was best at. To open my eyes and wake up This period of Jackson's career is so interesting because I think he tried to make his fame in the 80s mean something politically. And and I saw it firsthand when we were doing that going home and driving around. Like he and Bonnie Raitt and Crosby and Nash, these people were, they weren't just doing the benefit here or there. They were trying to, you know, do their part uh, and they did it all the time. And that's, great. But I also think uh, he ran into, you know, a sonic universe that was not serving him well. I'm alive. It's literally like, I am thankful for the record. And I'm also thankful that literally in that exact moment that he, Jan Wenner loaned me (laughs) and I got two days to talk about his life. Like my memory, I guess he was driving the two of us around and he would just like say, Go talk to that friend. Go talk to that friend. And uh, the preparation was literally just like uh, whatever he was telling me over the, you know, meals we grabbed in between. I do remember he also gave me, I believe he gave me the best restaurant advice in California history, which was a restaurant in Santa Barbara, Mexican like food stand called Supa Rica. And so... I'm grateful for some of the greatest songs ever written and a few of the best burritos I've ever had. And the way she looks down from so high above Makes me think the poor child never been in love Baby, That spot in Santa Barbara is what Linda Paloma is about. Or not about, but it's it's set there. That's so funny. Yeah, I, I would like a whole album live at the Super Rico. Oh, man. I really want to go now. I need to go there. So it was a lot of just like he wanted a person who's experienced with asking, with interviewing and, and doing this kind of thing in a natural way to be the person sitting down with them to ask the questions. Like, were you having pretty open-ended conversations with like David Crosby and Graham Nash and all them? This informs my sense of the guy. He's not, he was not slick. It was not... There was not much prep. And my guess would be that maybe there was some cut he had seen or first cut and said, I need to get some other people in this. <laughs> and uh, I got to talk. What, basically what I remember him saying is just go talk to my friends about shit. Like, I think that's that was ex- about as much pure direction as he gave me. There were, it's like, And that's very loose and spontaneous and real. That that special is a little bit of a uh, you know a buffet of different things. It's in the actual documentary, but with with Graham Nash and David Crosby, where they're like talking about how David Crosby's like a master um, lip reader, like he doesn't know the words to the songs, but he can basically stare at you, see what you're singing, and har- and figure out what to sing while harmonizing at the same time. Which they're like saying as a as like a magical powers type compliment, but also like a this dude cannot remember lyrics and <laughs> they're kind of making fun of him. <laughs> yeah. That's just a beautiful interview exchange. I love it. I worked for the Eagles. I did their interviews on the hell freezes over special. I've done a lot of off camera interviewing. It's never that loose, you know, in the Southern rock gods, you normally would have written out 20, you know, questions probably submitted them to a manager who would scratch off one or two, but Jackson just, uh, you know, he let it ride. <laughs> you know, That's, we were we just let it ride. That kind of information is like directly up my alley. Like it's like I like music. And so then I like documentaries about music. And now I feel like I'm getting like a documentary type answer about how the documentary was made. And it's like I could go down these kind of holes forever. I, I think there's some beauty in the fact that he was a arena act for for many years. Uh, but I think there's something freeing about him being a guy who can go out and be as spontaneous as I think he is at heart. Awesome. Well, I think that's a nice spot for us to end this. Um, This was a total pleasure. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And 
Uh, I love the podcast. Uh, Any anything that you have going on that you'd want to share, or where people can find you if they want to follow you more? Uh, while at Wild About Music on Twitter is the place where I overshare the most, and where I'll I don't know whenever this gets out, I'll be oversharing more about my feelings about Jackson and dropping more names. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. I think that life is full of pain. You know what I mean? Like you, it's painful for everybody. I mean, growing is painful. But I think that the only way through it is through it, you know, and you and and anything that helps is a blessing. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we do music.